American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. If you like American Catholic History, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about the first cathedral built in the United States, the church known today as the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Baltimore, Maryland. We will visit this basilica in our upcoming pilgrimage next spring. Dates to be determined, but keep an eye on our website, AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash pilgrimages, or sign up there for updates for details. One more note before we get into the story, we're actually recording this episode on our first pilgrimage to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country with some of our pilgrims looking on. Yeah, two of them are our mothers. (laughs) (laughs) There they are, folks. Okay. Uh, Yeah, so they get to see how the sausage is made. Anyhow, (laughs) let's get to it. We've got lots to discuss about the Baltimore Basilica, as it's more commonly known, and the story includes a lot of remarkable events. Right. It's the result of an incredibly bold strategy on the part of John Carroll, the first bishop of Baltimore, and it has inspired the respect and admiration of Americans of all faiths since its construction. It is truly a gem, and we are blessed to have it as the mother church of American Catholicism. One remarkable fact is that it was designed by Benjamin Henry Latrobe, who was considered the father of American architecture. The other project Latrobe was working on when he designed this cathedral was the U.S. Capitol building. Latrobe was a hugely influential architect. He was a good friend of Thomas Jefferson, and when Jefferson was president, he made Latrobe surveyor of public buildings. In that role, he was involved in many construction projects in the brand new city of Washington, D.C. So right off the bat, we're talking about a project of sufficient stature to gain the attention of one of the most important architects of his day. And given what was going on, this cathedral was part of the rise and development of what can be called American architecture. And to anyone who's ever been to the Basilica, especially since the 2006 restoration, this is no surprise. It feels like an exquisite example of the best elements of early American architecture. But with the prominence of the sanctuary and its apse, the Latin cross shape, and the integration of sacred art, it is also unmistakably Catholic. Absolutely. It is quintessentially American and thoroughly sacred. It is a, it's a unique combination that I've not really seen in any other church. But all of this is, frankly, remarkable considering the climate of the times when construction began in 1806. Yeah, it was just 30 years since the Declaration of Independence had been signed and only 15 since the Bill of Rights had been ratified. Prior to these events, Catholics were an oppressed and maligned minority in the 13 colonies. The only place in the English-speaking world where the Mass could be offered publicly was Pennsylvania, and in Pennsylvania, only in two churches in Philadelphia. In the colony of New York, being a Catholic priest was punishable by death. We talked about this with Father Ferdinand Farmer in episode 87. In Maryland, 
Mass could be offered, but only in chapels built on private lands, like those estates owned privately by Jesuits. There were Catholics in many parts of the colonies, but they had no right to practice their faith and were held suspect for being Catholic. So the religious liberty guaranteed by the Bill of Rights, while it was the result of a long evolution in political thought, was still a seismic shift for everyone involved. With the sudden freedom of the church in the United States, Pope Pius VI recognized that they needed their own bishops. So, in 1789, he erected Baltimore as the first diocese in the new nation and named Father John Carroll as the first bishop. And you've got to listen to episode three to find out how Ben Franklin helped the church to name Carroll as the bishop. It was so cool. Father Carroll was a well-educated man and very world-wise. He was born in Maryland, but had studied and taught in Europe for many years before returning to the United States. He was a very diplomatic man, but he wasn't a wilting flower. He had no hesitancy about asserting the primacy of Catholicism over every other faith. All in all, he was incredibly well-suited to the difficult task of being the first bishop of the massive and unwieldy Diocese of Baltimore. Also, he was well aware that in spite of the law of the land now being favorable, or at least officially ambivalent, towards Catholicism, the culture of the people at large hadn't changed all that much. Those who already thought that the anti-Catholic laws were dumb would be happy to see the change. And the sizable anti-Catholic factions who thought Catholicism was a threat to good American ideals would be riled by this development and would likely cause problems. So with all of that as foundation... Bishop Carroll had to build the church in his new diocese of Baltimore, but he had to do so with a scarcity of priests, a scarcity of churches, and a scarcity of money in a diverse diocese that stretched from the top of Maine to the bottom of Georgia and from the coast to more or less the Mississippi River. In a letter to the Bishop of Cartagena in Spain, which he wrote in part to plead for resources, Bishop Carroll wrote, I am in charge of a diocese without boundaries, a diocese which, I might say, is the object of hatred placed as it is among prevailing heresies. Everything must be arranged and introduced very gradually. A type of ecclesiastical discipline rather than its proper form must be imposed upon the clergy, the people, and the method of divine worship. Everywhere the diocese suffers from the scarcity of priests to whom the administration of sacred things can be safely entrusted, especially while we are closely watched by the heretics. Churches either do not exist or they are in a wretched condition due to the fact that the Catholics, who for so many years have been oppressed by harsh laws and have been reduced to a state of great poverty or scarcity, are beginning to come to life and emerge from their pitiful condition. This is the state of our affairs. So, his was not a promising position. No. But hey, you got to start somewhere. And what Bishop Carroll started with was a firm faith that success in this new diocese was God's will. He saw the advent of freedom of religion in the new United States as part of God's providence. Right. In his framework, the founders of the United States were acting, whether they knew it or not, to advance the providence of God for the church. Bishop Carroll, on the other hand, set out consciously to act in accord with God's will. And to hold up his end of the bargain, he began recruiting priests from Europe and pleading for donations from wealthy Americans and Europeans. He needed priests to man the parishes and go out as missionaries, and he needed churches for them to offer Mass in. But he didn't limit his goal to more priests in more churches all over the country. He also set his sights on erecting respected educational institutions 
and a grand cathedral. Yes, and this set of priorities may seem like trying to run before you can walk, since the diocese was so poor and in such need of even the bare necessities of church life. Right. I mean, why divert much-needed funds to things like a grand cathedral or top-tier educational institutions if your rank-and-file Catholic parish can barely scratch out a living? But Bishop Carroll had an answer for that. The answer was one word. Amplitude. Amplitude is the notion within Catholic apologetics that one of the signs that the Catholic Church is the true Church of God is its size and global character. Amplitude says that, though the church may suffer persecution and thus contract in some parts of the world, it shall be on the march and it shall be spreading in other parts of the world. This global ebb and flow is a sign of God's providential protection of the church as a whole. So to Bishop Carroll, as the church was suffering so greatly in Europe, the growth of the church in America was the providential response, if you will. And he believed that marks of this response needed to include a respectable college, a vibrant seminary, and a grand cathedral that all would respect and admire. In fact, the next portion of that letter to the Bishop of Cartagena that we quoted from before reads, This is the state of our affairs, which nonetheless can easily change for the better, and the growth of the Catholic Church in this country can be promoted if in other places, and especially in this Episcopal city, some church can be erected which will be suitable for celebrating the sacred liturgy. For this reason, I am trying as hard as possible to erect a Catholic cathedral, but I clearly realize that my efforts will be in vain unless the inexhaustible Christian liberality of the wealthy regions of Spain will undertake the task. So he clearly believed that the presence of a grand cathedral was important as a visual mark of the presence and prominence of Catholics in America. There was another way in which Bishop Carroll framed the emergence of the church in the new United States with the historical frame. He drew a parallel to the emergence of the church in Rome after Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which legalized Christianity. In one of the appeals that he wrote to American Catholics to gain their donations for the new cathedral, he wrote of the early Christians and how, as soon as they were freed from oppression, they built grand temples to God and devoted themselves to solemn liturgies in praise and thanksgiving. Likewise, he says, Catholics in America had reason to act similarly. To emphasize part of what you paraphrased, it wasn't just a cathedral that was important. It was the liturgical life which the cathedral gives rise to. Bishop Carroll knew the importance of liturgy, especially in a nation mostly populated by anti-liturgical Protestants. Carroll saw the public acts of the liturgy as a means of claiming the new nation for the church and, like the Grand Cathedral, a way to inspire awe and perhaps curiosity even among non-Catholics. Yes. Liturgy needed to be fully grand and fully sacred, drawing the viewer out of the mundane of everyday life and into the contemplation of the Almighty. Carroll wrote of the liturgy, It must be visible, and by its splendor contribute to raise in us ideas worthy of the greatness of the Master to whom it subjects us and proposes as the object of our worship. For this purpose were ordained the public ceremonies of religion. So to bring all of this amplitude to reality, Carroll founded Georgetown College in 1789 and in 1792, when Sulpicians arrived, St. Mary's Seminary. These were, respectively, the first Catholic college and the first Catholic seminary in the United States. And as early as 1792, the Grand Cathedral was discussed. 
Nothing happened on it, however, until after the turn of the 19th century. So now that we've painted the picture for why this grand cathedral was needed in a poor diocese, let's get into the actual building of it. So in the first years of the 1800s, Bishop Carroll decided it was time. He started raising the money by appeals to American Catholics as well as bishops and wealthy Catholics in Europe. Next, Bishop Carroll needed an architect. As we said, Benjamin Latrobe took on that role, but the way it happened is awesome. Carroll had some basic plans for a cathedral drawn up and sent them to a friend in Philadelphia for review. This friend was a friend of Latrobe, and Carroll probably knew this. Carroll also probably expected that the friend would show the plans to Latrobe. Both of those things happened, and what happened next was probably what Carroll was hoping for. Latrobe sharply criticized the plans and offered his services free of charge. So now, Latrobe was a Protestant, but he was happy to take on the project. We already mentioned his connection to Thomas Jefferson and that he was working on the Capitol building in Washington at the time. But offering a neoclassical design wasn't an automatic thing. Latrobe's architectural training included both the neo-Gothic and the neoclassical styles, and he offered two different proposals to Carroll, one in each style. Carroll chose the neoclassical. Many historians say this was because Carroll very intentionally wanted to align the architecture of his cathedral with that of the new federal buildings. Such a choice would make a statement about the church being part of the fabric of America. But the evidence doesn't support that conclusion. It is an interpretation put onto the events in later years. It appears that Carroll simply preferred that style for his church. One possible reason for that preference is the chapel where he was consecrated bishop, St. Mary's Chapel at Lulworth Castle in England. It was the first Catholic church built in England since the Reformation. It was a neoclassical structure, so Carroll's choice of neoclassical may have come down to that personal connection. So, the neoclassical was chosen. Latrobe's design was laid out in a Latin cross, which is typical of Catholic churches. He included a very large dome that dominates the crossing. The interior has a coffered grid pattern with plaster rosettes in the recesses. In the center of the outer dome, visible through the large oculus, is a large rosette with a carved wooden dove in flight. Around the main dome throughout the rest of the building is a system of smaller domes and barrel vaults that is just impressive. The windows were clear glass to let in as much light as possible. The front entrance is a large portico with fluted ionic columns topped by a triangular pediment. Just behind the portico are two onion domes with tall spires. Some say these were later additions because they seem to be out of place on the structure, but drawings show they were actually part of Latrobe's vision. One distinctive element that was suggested to Latrobe by Thomas Jefferson was a double-walled dome with a large oculus in the inner dome and 24 skylights in the outer dome to let a significant amount of sunlight to flood the center of the building. The next challenge was location. Initially, they looked at land down closer to the harbor in Baltimore, but that wasn't seen as optimal for a number of reasons, including the potential for flooding. Instead, they set their sights on a hill on the outskirts of town, but a hill that was plainly visible from the harbor. This was a significant choice because at the time, Baltimore was the major port that welcomed immigrants. More people were entering the U.S. through Baltimore than through any other city, including New York and Boston. 
So when immigrants first set their eyes on a U.S. city, one of the major features to welcome them would be the majestic Catholic cathedral high on the hill. Yeah, that would be quite an impression. Yeah, and again, Carol was intent on making a statement with every aspect of this. It's also important to note that there was no other cathedral in the U.S. for any denomination at the time. Naturally, most Protestant denominations don't do bishops in the cathedrals, but even the Anglicans and their American branch, the Episcopalians, didn't build a cathedral in the U.S. until the 1860s. So this cathedral was a bold move for its time in that way as well. So the plans were completed and a site chosen. Ground was broken in 1806. The ceremony for the blessing and laying of the cornerstone was a first salvo by Bishop Carroll of the liturgical claiming of America in and through this cathedral. It included a procession, everyone in full vestments, chanting, a processional cross, incense, planting a cross in the ground where the altar would eventually be the whole nine yards. Most of these things would have been considered idolatrous by the majority of the area Protestants, but Carol knew the truth of it. We are bodily beings. We worship God with our whole selves. And the power to bless, to sanctify, to bind and loose was given to the church. And by golly, he was going to put the full liturgical glory of Catholicism on display. The construction took time as funds didn't freely flow in. And then everything got delayed by the War of 1812. But the church was opened and dedicated in 1821 by the third Archbishop of Baltimore, Ambrose Marshall as John Carroll had died in 1815. As expected, the Cathedral of the Assumption drew widespread acclaim, and it was acknowledged as the most architecturally sophisticated building in the country at the time. The only other building which came close was the U.S. Capitol. It is also considered Benjamin Latrobe's masterpiece. Through the 19th century, the cathedral was the site of seven provincial and three plenary councils of Baltimore, including the Third Plenary Council, which directed the production of the long-used Baltimore Catechism. It was the site of the most priestly ordinations and Episcopal consecrations in the country until not that long ago. In 1937, it was named a minor basilica, and eventually was declared the National Shrine of the Assumption. It is, in so many ways, the mother church of Catholicism in the U.S. But it didn't escape the ravages of time, the effects of neglect, and the impact of misguided choices for decoration and renovation. The light-colored floor was replaced by dark green marble. The bright and airy color scheme was repainted with drab colors. The skylights were covered over, most likely because they were leaking and it was just easier to cover them. And the clear windows were replaced with stained glass. The white-painted pews were replaced with dark wooden ones. All of this served to make the interior very dark and heavy, the opposite of what Latrobe's architecture was supposed to do. In the 1950s, the Cathedral of the Assumption became co-cathedral of the diocese when the massive Cathedral of Mary Our Queen was completed in northern Baltimore. The neighborhood around the Cathedral of the Assumption became really rough. But in the early 2000s, Archbishop William Cardinal Keeler approved an ambitious plan to restore the cathedral to its original Latrobe splendor. The co-cathedral was closed to the public for about 15 months from 2006 to 2008. Every inch of the place was evaluated, bad paint choices removed, the white pews restored, the skylights reopened. The color scheme was returned to the pale yellows and creams. 
It also received much needed upgrades in ventilation, wiring, and accessibility. Plus, for the first time, the Undercroft was open to the public with a museum and chapel to accompany the tombs of the many archbishops of Baltimore, including John Carroll, who had been buried in the crypt under the sanctuary. And the result is stunning. I was in seminary when it reopened, and I was actually part of the seminary choir. One of the first masses held there was the opening for the annual meeting of the USCCB, which was held in Baltimore that year. I was privileged to be the cantor at that mass. I'll never forget the experience of walking around the space, the light, the space, the joy. It is just an amazing edifice. And like we said, it will be part of our pilgrimage to Catholic Maryland and Virginia in spring of 2022. Dates and info will be available at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash pilgrimages. The Baltimore Basilica, as it is now known, is an integral part of the history of the church in this country. It is an architectural marvel that draws visitors of every faith, or no faith at all, to marvel at its beauty and be drawn closer to God, whether they know it or not. And nowadays, since its restoration, it is an active part of the efforts to renew its neighborhood of Baltimore. The next time you're in Baltimore, don't miss a chance to visit America's first cathedral, the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Assumption of Mary. You've been listening to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. Be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. Also, please support the many fine productions of SQPN at sqpn.com slash give. To learn more about the Baltimore Basilica, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest. You are correct, Tom. Very good. <laughs> I have that on recording, by the way.